Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam and Eve, <clears throat> now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him shall attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. We are... Eight weeks into our Genesis series, we will take a break for Advent at the end of November and pick back up in Genesis 12 in January. Right now, we are in Genesis chapter 4. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis 4. Uh, we're not going to be considering all of Genesis 4. Uh, there are some, some items, some, some situations, some things, you know, uh, like verse 17. We didn't read verse 17. But there's a big question for me when I read verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Um, where'd she come from? You know? Um, so <laughs> that's why I'm not preaching it. It's just, you know, I don't know. Uh, no, we, I, I did decide, I tried this week to see, okay, is there a way for me to preach all of Genesis 4? Because just the way that we set the calendar, the only way for us to really get to, to have a, a full Advent series would be to, to stop at the end of November and that put us doing all of Genesis 4 in one sermon, but, you know, there's just a lot there that uh, can't, doesn't really fit. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel uh, fits really well with, with, you know, what some things I would want to talk about. So, you know, I'll, I'll probably deal with some stuff in the podcast this week, but we're not going to be dealing with the rest of, of Genesis 4. But Genesis 4 does bring up a lot of questions for us. And so maybe after hearing even the story of Cain and Abel, maybe you even thought of a question, you know, why this or, you know, what, what's, what's going on here? Maybe, maybe write that question down and see if by the end of the sermon it's, it's answered for you. And if not, you can take it up with Avery or somebody else. I don't care. Um, so uh, just kidding. Sorry, guys. Uh, Genesis 4. When we last left Adam and Eve... 
They had just received judgment from the Lord for their sin. They lost access to God in the garden. If you look at Genesis 3, verse 24, and the Lord drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so this couple who lived in the presence of the Lord in the Garden of Eden have now been sent out, and they now dwell east of Eden. And because of their sin, Adam and Eve lost what they had in Eden. And so as they were, I can just see them packing up their fig leaves, I guess, or whatever they had, you know, to to depart, you know, out of Eden and into exile, they had to leave a lot behind. They, They left behind a harmonious and peaceful relationship with God and with one another and with the world as a whole. They, they left behind the, the ever-satisfying provision of God. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to, to live in a place where the Lord says, take and eat from any tree in this garden. Take and eat. And then giving the man the purpose of, you know, cultivating the ground. It's like, you'll cultivate this ground, and it will always yield a harvest for you. It will always be satisfying. They lost that. They left behind the full and vibrant presence of God. So life is never going to be the same for them. Now, We come to the story of Cain and Abel, and it is so striking and so shocking. It it numbs our senses. And so it's easy for us to miss the importance of what's happening. The story is more dramatic and, you know, probably even more dramatic and probably more tragic than all those, like, Lifetime movies you guys will probably watch this Christmas. You know, they're so dramatic, and there's always a crazy tragedy with them, I guess. Not that I know. I don't watch stuff like that, but... Um, this story is so dramatic. It is so tragic. A man is overcome with anger to the point that he kills his little brother. I mean, it's, it's the saddest story so far in the Bible. Now, there are a lot of parallels between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, but Genesis 4 just drastically worsens the, the situation In both stories, the humans are tempted and given an opportunity to reject sin and trust God. In Genesis 3, Eve chooses to reject God and embraces sin by eating fruit from a tree. In Genesis 4, Cain chooses to reject God and embraces sin by killing his brother. Things have escalated just a little bit. But the parallels continue. Adam and Eve, they face God's judgment, and so did Cain. Adam and Eve were banished, and so was Cain. It's it's the tragic story of of how things are now not as they were meant to be. But the story of Cain and Abel is so much more than a tragic murder. If we only see it as a tragic murder, it'll be easy for us to distance ourselves from the story. We won't be able to see that a little bit of Cain remains in each one of us. So, Genesis 4 is an introduction to life east of Eden. And so just as life in Eden was marked by certain realities, life east of Eden is also characterized by certain realities. Adam and Eve had to leave a whole lot behind in Eden, but what followed them? As they they leave the garden paradise, what follows them east of Eden? There are two primary realities that followed Adam and Eve out of the garden. Sin and grace. Sin and grace. Sin and grace followed the couple out of Eden and will mark their lives east of Eden. 
And these two realities characterize our lives as well. Every situation, every circumstance, every person will be marked by some measure of sin and some measure of grace. Now, I believe if we are each able to see, to identify the early stages of sin and to understand the relentless pursuit and provision of God's grace, I believe we'll be well on our way to building the community and the culture that God would have us build. If we know sin for what it is, if we see it, if we're able to identify it, if we have this sobering realization that sin is walking with us, it's, it's with us every single day, and also God's grace, we will be able to build a healthy church culture. So I want to talk about those two realities in light of the story in Genesis 4, the unsurprising presence of sin and the surprising presence of grace. Let's take them one by one. First, the unsurprising presence of sin. Now, sin of course, was not an original factor in God's good world. Uh, But sin arrives through the serpent's temptation and Adam and Eve's failure to trust God. And I know that this, this probably feels like such an obvious observation that you might think it's not even worth mentioning. I mean, you have the, the preacher here who's telling you, hey guys, you know what a main point in Genesis 4 is? There's sin, okay? And you're like, oh wow, man, you must have consulted a lot of commentaries this week, some deep study. You know, you know, sin is, is part of your life. But it is something that Mo- Moses definitely wants us to see. The word sin appears in the Bible for the very first time in Genesis 4. In this chapter, we see the big or the, the taboo sins like murder and, and polygamy. We see how far people can stray from God's design. And we see how hardened our hearts can become against God and one another. But we're not surprised by sin's presence. It's, it's not a shock. We, we read at the beginning of chapter 4, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. This is the Adam and Eve that not only gave in to sin, but were infected with sin. So it makes sense that two sinners would produce more sinners. East of Eden, we can expect sin's presence. But the danger, as I said earlier, in reading this ancient story is that we are so prone to dodge its impact It just feels too dramatic and drastic and distant to feel relevant. I mean, whenever you hear the story, maybe you're familiar with it, that you're just numb to it. But whenever you hear that story for the first time, it might might cause you to be like, wow, that's awful. That's terrible. But you don't read that story and say, that is so me. That is so me. We're we're not prone to do that. Instead, we're prone to read the story and say, you know, I know I'm not a perfect person, but at least I'm not like Cain. At least I'm not like Cain. I mean, think about the story. Let's, let's just summarize it. Eve gives birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer, and Abel was a shepherd. Cain and Abel each bring offerings related to their professions to the Lord. God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Cain was then overcome with anger and killed Abel. And then the Lord holds Cain accountable for his actions. It's easy for us to get lost in these details, to get caught up in them. And also, it's very easy to recognize that murder is wrong and murder is sin. But are we able to recognize sin and its more hidden secretive, subtle, and early stages. 
I, I want to I help by, by focusing on a couple characteristics of sin that we see in the story. First, the source of sin. The source of sin. Where sin hides. Now, what led Cain to murder his brother? Maybe we can trace that back and we can say, well, his anger. His anger. He was angry. You know, said, uh, uh, you know Moses tells us that that Cain was very angry, and so his anger welled up in his heart, and then he committed murder. Well, what made him angry? Well, what made him angry was the fact that the Lord accepted Abel's offering and didn't accept his, and so, so we need to keep tracing this back to see what's really going on here, because Cain and Abel each bring offerings to the Lord as an act of worship, but only Abel's was accepted. You know, why? Why, why did God accept Abel's offering but not Cain's? What is so different between Cain and Abel that leads God to accept one and reject the other? And this is a really important question because on the surface, there really is no difference between Cain and Abel. You know, they're not very different at all. It's, it's not like Abel was the, the good kid who always obeyed his parents and always did what he's supposed to do, and then Cain's the, you know, the rebel. No, they, like Cain and Abel, they each had noble professions. They both worked really hard. They, they both likely made their parents proud. They both believed in God, and, and as we see in this story, they both worshipped him. They're both bringing sacrifices to the Lord. So why does God accept Abel and not Cain? Now, some have suggested that the answer lies in the form of the offering, the form of the offering. So they would say that Abel's offering was accepted because it was a blood sacrifice. He brought a lamb, which they say is a superior sacrifice to Cain's grain offering. And there may be something to this, but, you know, we know from the law that grain offerings were, were accepted just as much as blood sacrifices were. So, you know, it, it is possible that the Lord had specifically demanded a blood offering, which, which you know, would have made Cain's fruit of the ground offering unacceptable. But we don't, we don't really know enough to, to make that claim. What, what's more likely is that the answer lies not in the form of the offering, but in the form of the heart, in making the offering. And the answer is actually given to us in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11:4, we, we read, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Faith. Faith was the key difference. Abel offered by faith, whereas Cain seems to have offered a little more begrudgingly. And, and we know this from the details. A Abel offered the firstborn of his flock. But Cain did not offer the first fruits of his harvest. He only brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. So what mattered most in these offerings was not the form of the offering itself, but the form of the heart behind the offering. Now, now why say all this? Well, it shows us the source of sin. Sin begins in the heart. That's where it begins. It, it's, it's not, it doesn't begin with outside circumstances doesn't begin when other people do things to you sin begins in the heart and this is the biggest difference between the first sin in eden and all subsequent sins east of eden sin now resides in our hearts the source of cain's anger which led to murder actually began with himself and a failure to trust god through his worship practice offering a first fruit would have required faith and, and he didn't he didn't have it he didn't trust the lord he was stingy. So while Cain's anger is directed at Abel and possibly God, the source of his trouble is found in his own heart. 
And the source of every single sin we commit is found in our own hearts. And that's why we deflect. That's why, you know, when we forget this simple truth about sin, we are capable of actually destroying one another. We can do so much damage in the church, in our families, in in any relationship that we have by forgetting that our sin begins in here. We turn on one another. We, we won't begin resolving conflicts by looking within when we forget this reality about sin. Judgmental, harsh, gospel-light churches are full of people who forget that sin starts in the heart. And this is why sin is so dangerous. This is where it hides. It, sin doesn't just show up when we commit a, a sinful act. It's already lurking in our hearts. So the source of sin is our own hearts, and that's where it hides. But there's something else I want you to notice about sin in this passage, and that is the subtlety of sin. The subtlety of sin. Sin crouches. So we see in Genesis 4 that sin isn't just a dormant force that's residing in our hearts, nor is sin just something that happens when we commit a certain act. God uses a very interesting and instructive metaphor to describe the power of sin in Genesis 4, 7. Look at, look at verse 7 with me. In verse 7, the Lord says, well, first of all, in verse 6, he asks Cain, why are you angry? And Cain gives no answer. In verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this metaphor. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That's a haunting verse. God describes sin as a predator, an animal on the hunt. Sin is watching Cain. It's hiding itself, but it's always ready at a moment's notice to pounce and devour him. If Cain doesn't tame this wild animal, within the metaphor... It will overcome him. The Lord says sin wants you, and if you don't respond accordingly, it will have you. Sin always starts small. But if it's left unchecked, it always takes over. A couple things I want you to see here about this metaphor. What does it mean that sin crouches? Well, first that means that sin presents itself as something else it presents itself as something else first so sin crouches meaning that it can sometimes present itself as something good so think of the serpent's temptation in the garden you know the the source of that temptation was just playing on you know eve's desire for good things but but it warped her desire a little bit or think of satan's half truths to jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness or even think of the pharisees You know, we dog on the Pharisees, but the Pharisees fell into the sin of legalism, but it was because of this misguided zeal that they had for obedience to God's word. So so sin initially looks like something else. It can even look like something good. But here's something else it means. Sin crouches, meaning that it can present itself as much smaller than it really is. You ever wonder why our default response to sin is usually just to justify it? Well, it's because sin always seems small at first. What, what do we say? Come on, you could probably, help, you could probably fill, fill it in as I go. 
this isn't gossip. I'm just concerned. You know? It's small. It's little. This is nothing. I'm not slandering. I'm just venting. Um, I'm not judgmental. I care about holiness. How else do we do it? I'm not, I'm not impatient. I'm just decisive. I'm not flippant with God's word. I'm just free in Christ. This is sin crouching down. It's crouching down. The sins in your life that you do not think are a big deal or maybe certain attitudes or actions in your life that you don't even consider sin are the most dangerous to you because they are crouching. Sin usually presents itself as something else first. It shrinks. It hides. It doesn't look like it's that big of a deal. But then, secondly, something always happens with sin. Sin, if left unchecked, will conquer you. It will conquer you. Sin hides. It camouflages it appears smaller than it really is, but then one day it pounces. And that always makes me think of those like Animal Planet, you know, shows or the Nat Geo shows of the of the like Savannah, you know, and it'll it'll have this picture. It's always got that British dude's voice, you know what I'm talking about? These these shows. Okay. So um and you'll have like like gazelle out in this field, and then you'll just like see this like lioness, and she's she's crouching down like she's ready to go, and it's just like describing everything. Ah, oh, we have a herd of gazelle here, and a lioness on the hunt. She is hungry. Her tummy is growling. Like it's all you know, like it's silly. But you know, every single time I watch that, like it it stresses me out, you know, because you're watching it, and someone will, like one of the gazelle will hear something, they take off running. You know, they take off running, and then that line is just booking it right behind them. And you're just like, go, go, go. Like, you're just hoping they get away. And there's always that, like, young one or slow one, or maybe it's old, I don't know. But it just can't keep up with the group, and you're like, oh, bro, go, come on, come on. And then the line, what, what is every single time, just jumps on it. And then the guy's like, oh, dinner time, or something like that, you know. Pounces. Listen, this warning from the Lord do you know what the Lord is telling Cain here? Bro, you a gazelle. You an antelope. Sin is a lion. And if you don't see that, then it may already have you. We would be fools to think that we can ignore the subtle reality of sin in our hearts and lives and live as God would have us live peace, joy, and love are not likely outcomes for us if we live like sin isn't crouching at the door. Cain's anger was a clue to him. And the Lord says, why are you angry? Don't you know that sin is crouching at your door ready to take you down? You see, you see what the Lord's telling Cain here? In the early stages of sin, we still have some control. That's the point of the warning. Right now, Cain, in the early symptoms of anger and bitterness... And hatred, they're welling up in his heart. Sin is crouching. And the Lord's saying, notice it, feel it, and then flee from it or kill it. Master it before it masters you. We need to remember this. Sinful dispositions always proceed and usually give rise to sinful actions and behaviors. Prejudiced attitudes proceed and give rise to prejudiced behaviors. Bitter attitudes proceed and then give rise to bitter behaviors. We see here how Cain's crouching sin of anger rose to murder. 
Sin crouched. He did nothing, and then sin pounced on him and overwhelmed him to the point that he could no longer even see his own brother as his brother. This is the power of sin. But if you're not paying attention, if you aren't awake to the lurking, crouching reality of sin, it will have you in its grip. And by then, you will be powerless to rescue yourself. It's like, you know, the Christian writer from centuries ago, John Owen, when he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. God is essentially saying here the same thing about sin's subtle power. Rule over sin or it will rule over you. And when sin has you in its grip, it will harden you and you won't even recognize it. Do you see how important it is to live each day with a waking consciousness of the subtle power of sin? If you don't, then you won't just have a sin struggle. You know, we say that all, we got sin struggles. You won't just have a sin struggle. You will go from being sin's prey to sin's puppet. Its desire is for you. Master it before it masters you. And by the way, that, that's what I mean when I say that if we would each have a sobering appreciation for sin's power in our hearts, we would begin building the culture and community God wants for us here. Because when you understand that sin is subtle yet powerful, that it's a predator who wants to control you, you will see just how much you need a community that will accept you as you are in Christ and go to great lengths to help you see sin when it's crouching at your door. The unsurprising presence of sin, but something else followed the couple out of Eden. It wasn't just sin. God's grace followed too. The surprising presence of grace. Sin's presence east of Eden is not shocking. It's totally expected. But God's grace is a little bit shocking. Now, when we think of the God of Genesis 1 through 3, because that's all I want you to focus on right now, the God of Genesis 1 through 3, we think of an all-powerful creator, an all-sovereign king who has all authority to do whatever he wants, and he's also holy. When the people commit a sin like they did, we should expect nothing but justice from God and judgment. Because that's, that's all it demanded. That's all, that's all that it deserved. And, and I believe that we've grown so accustomed to expecting good things from God that maybe we've forgotten how utterly startling it is that he would bless us at all. But God's grace followed humanity east of Eden. He banishes them, and then he follows them in grace and not just judgment. A few things to notice about God's grace in Genesis 4. First, God's grace is counterintuitive. We see this in God's acceptance of Abel, but not Cain. Maybe we can get to the bottom of this. You know, the nature of the offering is an important factor, but the effect that it had on Cain's heart has more to do with the nature of God's grace. I mean, think about it. Cain, I, 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 I kind of feel him, you know, being upset. Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's offering is not. I expect him to be upset, but who do we expect him to be upset with? God right? Because God's the one who rejected him. But who is he upset with? Abel. Abel. That's where his anger is directed. Cain, by the virtue of his very name, was an achiever. And he could not bear the thought that his little brother would receive something better than him. Cain's whole identity was caught up in not just being successful, but in being more successful than Abel. 
Cain's name means to get, to achieve, to win. You know what Abel's name means? Brevity, meaninglessness. And that's how Cain saw their relationship. He was the overachieving firstborn. Even Eve, in in the first verses in chapter 4, we see Eve rejoicing over Cain's birth, but Abel's birth is just detailed as an afterthought. And that's how it worked in Hebrew culture. The firstborns were the recipients of the father's inheritance. They, They were the ones who were the winners. They were the achievers. But God's pattern of giving out grace is focused on the younger brother. Favor comes to the one that we would least expect. God accepted and approved of Abel, not because he was better than Cain, because in so many ways he probably wasn't better than Cain. But God accepts and approves of sinners, not on the basis of their performance, but on the basis of his gracious will, which is received by faith and not by works. And we can't predict God's grace. He is free to dispense it. But he often accepts those that the world naturally rejects. So God's grace is counterintuitive. You are never too far from God to receive his grace. And you don't have to have your life all together to receive his grace. All you need to be is a beggar for the king to invite you to the feast. We each qualify. Everyone in our city qualifies as recipients of God's grace. Cain could not handle this. It should come through how good I am. And he couldn't handle it and, it, and it overwhelmed him. God's grace is counterintuitive. But second, God's grace is relentless. And we see this in how patient God is with Cain. He keeps pursuing him. The questions he keeps asking. He comes to Cain in the initial stages of sin, not as a judge, but as a counselor. He graciously warns him of crouching sin. He informs him that he can put an end to the deadly chain of sin if he would just master it. And even when Cain refuses to listen and then proceeds to murder his own brother, God stoops down again, but he doesn't immediately judge or condemn or banish Cain. Do you see how gracious he is in this question? He asked Cain, where is your brother? God had every right to enact immediate justice on Cain, and, we, and I even want it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Get out of here. But he wants Cain to see and feel the weight of the evil that he's committed. It's more grace. It's an opportunity for confession and repentance. It's an opportunity for forgiveness But sin has hardened Cain's heart, and he says, am I my brother's keeper? But even then, in the face of such stubbornness and pride, God's grace continues to extend. It's relentless. God curses Cain and then banishes from the land of his family. And, of course, Cain, being broken not over sin or over the fact that his brother's dead because he killed him, but just upset that he now has consequences to face, the Lord responds with grace. Look at it with me in verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. It's all he cares about are his own consequences. And then in verse 14, he says, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And I'm, I, you know, just me personally, 
I've been like, sad story, bro. You know, I don't know what to tell you. Um, you know, make yourself a sword. Or so- I mean, I don't know. Good luck to you. I hope they do. You know, uh, that's my response. And what's the Lord's response, though, in verse 15? And then the Lord said to him, good riddance. No. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. If anyone didn't deserve God's grace, it was Cain. But, he received, but, but the Lord continued to show it. He continued to extend it. You are never too deep in your sin for God to stop pursuing you. Never. You are never too deep in your sin for God to stop pursuing you. There is no limit to God's grace. At any moment in this entire dialogue, Cain could have turned to God and been accepted and forgiven. And so can you. And so can your friends. Since God's grace is so surprising, so counterintuitive, gentle, and relentless, how about we model some of that in our church and in our city? How about we not give up on each other? Let's not give up on our friends and our family who are trapped in a whirlwind of sin. And let's never forget that God's supply of grace never runs dry. Not even for you. Not even for me. You know, there's an interesting passage. We read it earlier in the service for our assurance of pardon. In Hebrews 12, that connects the death of Abel to the death of Jesus. And feel free to turn to Hebrews 12 and look at verse 24. Hebrews 12 In Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus is described as a better Abel. Now, Cain's the main character. Um, Abel is mostly passive. We have him in the beginning bringing an offering to the Lord, but he's mostly passive in this story. Things are happening to Abel. God accepts him. Cain murders him. Um, And he's completely silent. Abel does not speak a word in this narrative. But isn't it interesting how God metaphorically describes learning about the murder? Now, again, it's metaphorical. The the Lord wasn't caught off guard or he wasn't in the dark. But in Genesis 4.10, we read this. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel doesn't speak a word, but his blood is crying out to God for justice. In Hebrews 12, 24, we read that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why? Why is the blood of Jesus a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, because Abel's blood cried out for justice, but it could not offer atonement. Abel's blood could only demand justice. It couldn't satisfy the demands of justice. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Jesus was more innocent than Abel, and he died an unjust death just like Abel. But on the cross, Jesus' shed blood accomplished something that Abel's blood never could. Jesus' blood secured both justice and forgiveness. Jesus' blood cried for justice in this way. Father, your wrath And judgment against sin and sinners is satisfied. Justice has been served through me. So through the shed blood of Jesus, forgiveness and atonement are possible. Exiles can be welcomed home. Jesus received the judgment that we deserve. So because 
of the death of Jesus, it's as if the blood of Jesus is crying out. It would be unjust for you, God, to judge sinners who turn to you in faith now because I have suffered the judgment for them. Because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, it was fully accepted by God. And so now God can look on sinners like us with regard. Sin is always going to be present east of Eden. We need to see it. We need to recognize its early stages. It will crouch and it will seek to devour us. But praise God that his grace followed out of Eden too. So keep looking to Jesus with the eyes of faith. And sin, though an enemy to master now, will never be able to destroy us. Because Jesus' blood speaks a better word.